This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, welcome back, my friends. It's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the One Verse Podcast as we continue to discuss the topic of hell in the Bible. We've looked at all of these key terms, key words about hell so far, and so now we are turning to some Bible verses. This is the One Verse Podcast, after all. And over the next several episodes, we will be discussing several key passages from the Bible about hell. Today, we'll be looking at James 3, 6, and James 5, 3. The reason for these passages, you might not think of them as central texts from the Bible about hell, but they are central. These two verses, especially the first one, James 3, 6, help us understand what the rest of the New Testament teaches about hell. And I will be explaining why that is when we get into the study. Before that, though, I do want to mention my sponsor. My sponsor for this podcast episode is... You! (laughs) Uh, Seriously, if you appreciate this podcast, then you can support this podcast in a couple of different ways. One, you could buy some of my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, iTunes, Kobo, wherever it is you like to buy books. Doing that gives me a dollar or two off of each book purchase, and that helps support the costs and time and energy that I expend in producing this podcast. It's a great encouragement to me to when you buy and read those rebo- those books. Thank you very much. And of course, you can always buy the paperback versions and give them away to somebody else as gifts. They make great gifts. I had a great... Uh, in fact, even if you end up disagreeing with me, I think that my books will help you learn and think. I had a great um, encouragement from a friend of mine on Facebook this week. He said that although he often disagrees with me, My books and my writings always make him think. (laughs) That's my goal, okay? So, uh, look, they will make you think. And I'm not writing my books for the scholars or the academics. I'm writing them for you, okay? Whether you think of yourself as a scholar or an academic or not, I try to write in a way that is accessible and readable and also thought-provoking, okay? So that's the first way you can help support Uh, this podcast, sponsor it in a sense. The other way is to join my online discipleship group. This is the full experience of my reading and writing and teaching. And for just $9 a month, you get access to a private Facebook group, to personal emails with me, and also to all nine of my online courses that are available right now. These courses would cost you a couple thousand dollars if you were going to buy them all, but I don't want you to pay that. Just join the online discipleship group It um, supports this podcast and some of what I teach and write, but also uh, it's going to encourage and teach you some of the basics, the the central teachings and ideas that I think are essential to anyone who wants to understand God, understand scripture, and better follow Jesus into the world. So uh, to learn more about that and join, just visit redeeminggod.com slash join. Now, with all of that in mind, let's turn to our study of James 3, 5, and 6. So, uh, we've studied these several key terms, Sheol, Gehenna, Abyss, Tartarus, Hades, the Outer Darkness, and in the last episode, the Lake of Fire. 
And in each case, we've seen that none of these terms from the Bible describe a place of everlasting torment or torture or suffering for unbelievers in a place of burning flames. Okay? Now, you might say, well, that's fine, but what about all the Bible passages that seem to teach that? And that is what we're going to begin to study today as we look at some key Bible passages. Today, we're going to be just uh, considering James 3, 6 and 5, 3. So let's just begin with James 3, 6. James 3, 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Now, this verse specifically, James 3 and also James uh, James 3, 6 and also James 5, 3 when we get there. But James in general, the book of James in general is very helpful for us understanding, seeking to understand what the New Testament teaches about hell. And the reason is because James is probably the earliest of the New Testament books that were written. And as a result, there weren't other books that James could refer to. He was relying primarily on the Hebrew scriptures and on the traditions, the teachings, the oral teachings that he had heard about Jesus, his half-brother, uh, and, and from Jesus himself, as maybe he grew up and worked with Jesus. His, again, Jesus, James and Jesus were half-brothers. Okay. Furthermore, James was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And James, in his letter, seems to rely heavily on the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. So for all of those factors, for all of those reasons, James is sort of foundational, key. It, it, the, the, what James writes about in the book of James, in his letter, is extremely important for helping us understand, yes, the Sermon on the Mount, but also the Hebrew Scriptures, you know, how the early Christians understood much of the principles and ideas in the Hebrew Scriptures, and in passages like this one, James 3.6, what the New Testament, what the early church believed about hell and about fire. James mentions both fire and hell, these images, in James 3.6. And so as we understand what James teaches, what James believed about fire and about hell, and how we experience them, how people can experience them, then that helps us understand the rest of Scripture. And as I was studying this passage, by the way, uh, one other Bible teacher who was extremely helpful in this regard was Bradley Jerzak. He wrote a great, fantastic book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. And by the way, uh, Brad uh, wrote the foreword for my new book, What is Hell? It's coming out in June. And uh, here is the foreword. If you're, if you're watching the video on this, you can sort of see it here. And uh, so I'm pretty excited about that, that he wrote the foreword. Brad and I do not agree uh, entirely on what the Bible teaches about hell. but I, So that's why I was pleased to have him write it. I am not afraid to have people disagree with me, and Brad is one of those who's not afraid of it either. We both uh, like to read things that we disagree with because it makes us think. And so he wrote the foreword to my book, 
Uh, he also wrote a response at the end to show some of the points where he disagrees with me, and then I have a brief rejoinder after that where I respond to his response. And by the way, uh, I have a great afterword as well by Wesley Rostall, who's part of my online discipleship group, and he wrote a book called Seeing the Cross with New Eyes, so he wrote an afterword. I've got some good reviews coming in as well from other people, so uh, Mike Edwards, uh, Graham Smith... Uh, uh, Michael Rands of the Cruciformity Reddit, Nizam Khan, some others, okay? Anyway, the point is, uh, Brad Jerzak wrote this excellent article called Hell is a Kingdom, and I linked to it in the notes for this uh, podcast episode, the, the PDF where you can go read it. And uh, he wrote in this book that when James, I'm sorry, in this article, Hell is a Kingdom, that uh, when James is writing about hell in James 3, 6, it reveals that hell is not a destination that people go to after death. Instead, it is, hell is the source of the flames that sets the tongue and this world on fire. Okay, and, and you can read his article for a better explanation of that. But you go back and look at the text, and that's exactly what it says. Okay, the tongue is so set among the members of our body that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, that is the course of our life, <laughs> okay, and is set on fire by hell. And so James, uh, Brad points out that James, you think about it, the tongue, James says, is set on fire by hell. Well, is your tongue actually burning in your mouth? No, of course not. The fire of hell that sets our tongue on fire among the members of the body is symbolic. And what is it symbolic of? What is the fire in James 3, 6 symbolizing? And therefore, what also is hell? Which, by the way, the Greek word here for hell is Gehenna. What is it symbolizing? It's symbolizing sort of the forces, the power of destruction and sin and darkness that is in this world that seeks to destroy our life. I think it's probably best, and Brad Jerzak brings this out, and I also uh, bring it out in my book, What is Hell, that hell is a kingdom that is sort of the exact opposite, the polar opposite of the kingdom of heaven. So if you can think of everything that is the kingdom of heaven, the things that God values, that Jesus showed us, taught us, revealed to us through his life and ministry, then the kingdom of hell is the exact opposite of that. And just as the kingdom of heaven is in this life here and now, the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God on earth, okay, now in our lives by how we live, then the kingdom of hell is the opposite of that and can also then be in this life, in this world, in our life now, and reveals itself by how we live, how we behave, how we interact with others. And that's what James is talking about. The tongue is in your body, and it is set on fire by the kingdom of hell on this world, in this life, now. And depending on what our tongue does and says, it changes the course of our life. And it can ruin our relationships, ruin our finances, set our life on fire, destroy our life as well. All right, and, and so this just is showing us how James used the symbols, the pictures, the images of fire and hell to talk about their consequences, the devastating consequences that can come into our lives 
because of the fires of hell that set our tongue on fire and change the course of nature, the course of our life. Okay, so what is hell? I agree with Brad Jerzak. Hell is not a place of burning and torture in the afterlife. Hell is an experience of death and devastation in this life. Now, uh, yes, some of the fiery devastation and destruction will come upon believers at the judgment seat of Christ, and uh, that is partly what James is warning us about in James 5.3. Now, Paul writes about this a lot. Jesus teaches about this a lot as well. Uh, sometimes when the Bible talks about, warns people about fire that can come upon their life, it is talking about our life now, but there are some places, 1 Corinthians 3, for example, we'll be talking about that text later, where the fire is referring to an afterlife experience, but guess what? Not for unbelievers, but for believers. The fire is a fire of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, which is only for believers. And it's not a place where God takes some believer and said, you know what, you were so sinful, you were so evil, off to hell with you, you can't come into heaven. No, the believers who are at the judgment seat of Christ are headed for heaven, for eternal heaven, as part of the family of God. But the way they lived, some of the ways they lived, the evil things they did, the bad things they did, instead of being gold, jewels, and precious stone, they are wood, hay, and stubble, and they will get burned up. They will not last, not persevere, not be helpful into eternity. Okay? Anyway, that's what James is talking about in James 5.3 as well, the second text from James that helps us understand what hell is. Uh, James 5.3 says, "'Your gold and silver are corroded.'" And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have helped or you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Okay, so again, some people cite this verse, quote this verse, and saying, see, rich people are all headed for hell. That's why we need to give away our riches. And then they might go to passages like the rich young ruler, where Jesus instructs him to give away all of his wealth, so on. Those, these passages are often connected. Um, and, and James does say here, he sort of indicates that their gold and silver uh, you know, will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And people say, well, how is that going to work? How is gold and silver going to eat our flesh like fire? And so then they, they begin imagining all these strange scenarios in the afterlife and in hell, where the, I don't know what the demons take the, I don't want to get too vivid here, whatever graphic, but I don't know, you, you're melting the gold and silver and pouring it on people. People go really crazy with some of their imaginations on all of this. And uh, anyway, uh, the thing is, is James has pointed out frequently in his letter that the people to whom he is writing are Christians. Many, many times, several times in the book of James, James believes, knows that the people he's writing to are Christians. And the rich Christians are among those to whom James is writing. He considers them brethren, these rich Christians. That's in James 2, 1 through 7. He calls them rich. I mean, he calls the rich Christians brethren. Okay, so James does not believe that these rich Christians, if they don't give away their wealth, that they're going to end up in some burning torment in the pit of hell, burning in flames, screaming in agony forever and ever, while demons pour molten gold and silver on their head or something like that. That's not what James is talking about. James knows that these rich Christians are brethren, 
They are part of the family of God. They are Christians, and they too are headed for an eternity in heaven with God and the rest of the Christians. And the reason then that James is writing to them is because they're Christians, telling them how to use their wealth because they're Christians. Okay, so James now is writing near the end of his letter, hey, you rich Christians, God has given you wealth, and here's how you should use it. Be generous with your money and give it away, okay? And you can, James is basically saying, you can choose. You can choose to store up wealth and treasure for yourself now, or you can choose to store up wealth and treasure for yourself later in eternal life. How? By giving away, by being generous with your wealth now. Okay, again, Jesus teaches the same thing multiple times in the Gospels. Paul teaches the same thing. Okay, um, all of these are, is what it was what James has in mind. All right, so the fire of James three then once again is the the this, uh, the symbolic devastation or destruction that can come upon rich Christians' lives at the judgment seat of Christ. They've gained up all this money for themselves. And if they hoard it, you know, what, what do they think is going to happen? When they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, look, Jesus, I saved up a million dollars in my bank account. He's going to look at people and say, so? <laughs> Why didn't you use that for the kingdom? Right? Why didn't you use that to spread the gospel? All of that is wood, hay, and stubble when we stand before Jesus Christ. So James is saying, give it away. Be generous. Use it for the gospel of the kingdom. All right, so that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you get treasure then, which is treasure that lasts for eternity. James is warning the rich Christians that when they hoard wealth for themselves now, well, they might think they're storing up treasure for themselves, but they will lose treasure at the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, if you hoard wealth for themselves now, the only quote-unquote treasure they will get at the judgment seat of Christ is the thrill of seeing all their wealth burn away like wood, hay, and stubble. All right? And that is what James is talking about. He's saying your wealth is eating away your life now. It is corroding your life. You think you're having a better life because you're storing up wealth for yourself, but really your life is poorer because you're not seeing the thrill and having the the, the, the excitement of understanding, seeing, knowing the, what your wealth can accomplish in this life to help other people now. Okay? And uh, this, by the way, is the biblical teaching on riches. I'm not going to get political here or anything, but there's a big movement right now in, 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 in certain uh, parts of the world about the government taking wealth away from the rich. And uh, people, some Christians say that that is biblical. It isn't. All right? The biblical concept of wealth is that the wealth give the wealthy give their wealth away, all right, uh, joyfully and generously and willingly. That's the biblical concept, and it's complete opposite, okay? Uh, it's not the government saying, what you have is mine. Instead, it's the wealthy saying, what I have is yours. Let me give it to you. Let me help, all right? That's the difference, and it's a, a complete different perspective, and that's what James is advocating here for the wealthy that he is writing to. You are wealthy? Good. Give it away. Store it for yourselves. Treasure in that way at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, so look, James 3.6 and James 5.3 
are not teaching about an afterlife experience for the unregenerate dead where they're going to suffer and scream and burn forever in flames of fire for all eternity. Instead, both texts are symbolic for the fires of destruction and devastation that can come upon a person's life now because they refuse to live the way God wants and desires and instructs. And yes, there is an element about destruction, devastation, burning that can come upon their life when they stand at the judgment seat of Christ for believers. But again, that is not God sending them to hell. That is God saying, Jesus saying, you know, what you thought was valuable in your life really wasn't, and it's all burning away. So um, that, that's what Paul talks about, 1 Corinthians 3. That's what James is referring to here as well. Okay, so what then is hell? <laughs> what is hell? I've been talking about the words for hell. We're going to be looking at numerous Bible passages about hell. But as we sort of transition from the words about hell to the Bible passages about hell, it's helpful to see what hell actually is. And again, I would just invite you to realize that hell, think of hell as a kingdom that is on this earth. It is... Uh, It has people that are ruled by it. It has values and laws and ways of governing, okay, and things that it is trying to accomplish. And it is set in exact opposite to the kingdom of heaven. So whatever you think the kingdom of heaven is, by the way, the kingdom of heaven is not heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God on this earth, Uh, God bringing heaven down to earth in a sense, Okay, so the kingdom of heaven is the polar opposite to the kingdom of hell. What sorts of things differ it? I have a chart, uh, again, in the blog post that goes along with this podcast episode, where I show some of the differences. So, for example, the kingdom of heaven is ruled, characterized by everlasting life. The kingdom of hell, however, is ruled by death, not only in this life, but also in the next life. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is exemplified by Jesus. Whatever you see Jesus doing, saying, acting, that's the kingdom of heaven. Whereas the kingdom of hell is exemplified by Satan. The things you see Satan doing, saying, acting, tempting people to do, that is representative of the kingdom of hell. Kingdom of heaven, John talks about in 1 John, is like walking in light. And he contrasts that with walking in darkness. Those are your two options. Uh, kingdom of heaven is life guided by love, whereas the kingdom of hell is life guided by hate. How are you living? Is it guided by love or guided by hate? Kingdom of heaven is when you abide, remain in the truth. Kingdom of hell is when you abide or remain in lies, self-deception, believing lies. Kingdom of heaven, you'll practice righteousness. Kingdom of hell, you'll practice wickedness. Kingdom of heaven, hope and healing. Kingdom of hell, despair and destruction. Okay, lots of others. I'm not going to read through them all, but the the biblical contrast could not be more clear between these two kingdoms. And it's dangerous to say, well, the kingdom of heaven is now and we're supposed to be living in this way, but hell is just in the afterlife. Okay, note that both options, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell, are available here and now on this world for people in this life. And the two types of kingdoms describe the two options that you and I face, the choices, the types of choices that we can face here and now. It's not about an afterlife experience. 
It's about now. How we respond to the instructions and commands of God determine what sort of life experience we have here and now. So look, where is hell? It's here and now. What is hell? It's the kingdom of hell. Death, destruction, decay, despair, all those sorts of things. And when is hell? Not in the afterlife. It's in our lives now, or at least it can be in our lives now. It is sickness and pain, death and disease, pestilence and famine, rape, murder, abuse, neglect, fear, loneliness, greed, lust. All of those things are elements, aspects, characteristics of the kingdom of hell. And it is why Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven and tells the church to live in light of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, it's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16, 18, when he says he's going to lead the church to assault the gates of hell. Because all those people who are living in pain and disease and death and famine, have experienced rape and murder and abuse and neglect and fear and loneliness, they are suffering in the kingdom of hell now. And Jesus wants us to lead the way. Jesus is leading the charge to help set those people free. Now, Here's where this insight raises a startling truth about hell. Okay? The fact that the kingdom of hell exists here and now on this earth, rather than in some afterlife experience in the future, right? What that means, you ready? Any theological system, you know, any, any, any theological belief which says, that hell is just an afterlife experience for unbelievers, for the wicked, for the impenitent, for the unregenerate, for the unredeemed, right? Any theological system that says that. Oh, hell's not now. Hell is just then, later in the future. Any theological belief system that says that is helping and aiding the kingdom of hell now on this earth. That's a strong statement, right? Look, those who think that hell is only an afterlife experience, they will not be working to rescue and liberate people from the kingdom of hell that is here now. Oh, sure, they might be going door to door, passing out tracts, you know, trying to save souls, rescue them from hell in the future. <laughs> But what are they going to be doing to rescue people from the hell in their life now? Not much, because they're not concerned with that. They're only trying to rescue people from this afterlife experience of hell, right? Which there is an aspect of that that does exist. I'm not trying to downplay that. It's not going to be burning, suffering, torturing, screaming in flames, okay? But it will be an experience, a personal experience of separation, uh, okay, uh, and... My book gets into that a lot. I want to go down that rabbit trail right now. But if you think that's all that hell is, then you're not going to be doing much to rescue people from hell now, which means if you're doing nothing, then you're actually helping the spread of the kingdom of hell upon this earth now. When the kingdom of hell goes unchallenged, it grows in power and influence. And in fact, in fact, the three traditional views of hell Uh, Traditionalism or infernalism, that's the view that um, people suffer and scream and burn forever in eternity. That's the first view. Then there's universalism, and then there's annihilationism. Universalism is everybody goes to heaven when they die. Annihilationism is, no, not everybody goes to heaven when they die, but some people 
uh, will cease to exist. Yeah, they might go to a burning place first, and then they burn up eventually after a certain amount of time or whatever. Anyway, um, especially traditionalism and annihilationism, all right, these views actually support the hell on earth, the concept, the power of hell on earth. Why? Because they create fear in the minds of people. How many people do you know that have suffered emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually because they are terrified of going to a place of everlasting screaming torture for all eternity in the next life? Or they are terrified that one of their loved ones, a parent, a sibling, a child, grandparents, a friend, is there screaming and suffering and being torched for all eternity or until they are annihilated, okay? Thou, those views are creating psychological terror, fear, hell in the minds of many people. Those religious beliefs that hold to some sort of suffering or annihilation or torment in the afterlife are helping create hell. They are supporting the power of the kingdom of hell on earth now for people who hear those sorts of teachings. Look, you might have heard it said that the greatest lie of Satan is that Satan doesn't exist. Have you ever heard that? You probably have heard people say, oh, Satan doesn't exist. Satan does exist. And some people rightly teach the greatest lie of Satan is that he doesn't exist. Okay? Now, if that's true, and I think it is, then the second greatest lie of Satan is that hell only exists in the afterlife. Satan would love people to believe that, that hell only exists in the afterlife. We're only trying to rescue people from going to that place after they die. Meanwhile, Satan can rule and reign in this life. The kingdom of hell can rule and reign in this life. And in fact, the whole view, the terror torture view of hell actually supports and endorses and helps give strength to the fear and terror in people's lives here and now. Uh, and it supports hell, the, the, the kingdom of hell on earth. Okay, This lie that hell just is for the afterlife causes Christians to ignore and neglect billions of people who are experiencing hell right here on this earth. We walk by them every day ignoring their cries of pain and their calls for help. Maybe we'll give them a tract so that they can go to heaven when they die. But what about the death and the hell they're experiencing now? Hell is here and hell is now. And until we recognize this truth, we will not work to rescue or liberate those who are trapped behind its gates. Jesus is leading the church towards the gates of hell now. And if we say, oh, I don't need to worry about that, hell's in the afterlife. I'm good. I've got my fire insurance. I believed in Jesus. And my task on this earth is just to give other people, right, that fire insurance as well. Who cares about the pain and suffering they're experiencing in their life now? Nobody's actually going to say that. But the view endorses it and supports it. Okay, The traditional doctrine of hell right, is almost solely responsible for creating a spiritual and psychological hell in the minds of those who hear and believe that view. It also causes people to have trouble worshiping God, by the way. 
I don't know if you've ever encountered people. I've encountered dozens, scores of people who said they they cannot worship a God who would send people to suffer and scream for in torture for all eternity in fires of hell. I've met many atheists who have said that is the reason they have become atheists, because they will not, they cannot worship a God who would do that. <laughs> and so they reject all of it. And for no reason, because that sort of hell doesn't exist. In fact, that sort of hell is creating hell in the minds of those who hear this view. Okay? It is a twisted perversion of the gospel. Christians seek to rescue people from this eternal hell, and in so doing, they consign people to a living hell in this life now. People tear themselves up spiritually, psychologically. They live in fear, trembling, fear of God, fear of sinning because, I don't want to go to hell when I die, right? Fear that they haven't believed the right things or believed enough or believed in the right way or performed enough good works. And so they live in terror of God and in terror of hell. And Satan is laughing gleefully the whole time because this is the power of hell at work through the church, through Christians, and through the theology that teaches such things. All right? Belief in eternal conscious torment. It doesn't lead people to the deliverance of hell, but instead leads to the creation of hell in the minds of countless millions. That's why that view is so horrible, one of the many reasons it's so terrible, and why we need to properly understand what the Bible actually teaches about hell and what Jesus is calling us to do about it. Talked in previous podcast episodes, Jesus is leading the church to attack the gates of hell. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us if we follow his lead. Are you going to follow? Are you going to sit back, attend church, sit in your padded pews, read your Bible, have your morning devotions and pray, and, you know, maybe once in a while hand out a Bible tract so that you can rescue souls from hell, meanwhile neglecting the existence, the real-life existence and experience of hell that many people are experiencing all around us every day. Don't do that. Follow Jesus to the gates of hell. Open your eyes and your ears to see the suffering and the fear and the guilt and the shame and the depression and the sorrow and the sickness and the pain that exists around you all the time, every day, in your own neighborhood, maybe under your own roof in your house. And then work to see what Jesus wants to do to get rid of that kingdom of hell and introduce the kingdom of heaven into the lives that he has placed around you. Bring a message of hope and healing and grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and restoration. Those are characteristics of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus brought and that he is inviting us to introduce to the world as well. Challenging idea, right? It's what the Bible teaches. I'm convinced of it. Now, I have a lot more to say about this, obviously, and we will be looking at several key texts about this in the future. Next week, in fact, we're going to look at a passage from the Old Testament that also teaches a similar idea about fire. It will be Isaiah 33, 10 through 16, so you can study that on your own in advance if you want. And uh, But between now and then, Look, you can listen to some of the previous podcasts about hell. 
Uh, also, if you want to support this ongoing work, as I said earlier, you can buy my books or join my online discipleship group. In fact, if you have questions about this, my private Facebook group might be one of the best ways to get some of these questions answered. It's a great group of people. It's a safe place to ask questions, uh, state fears, uh, ask for prayer requests, all sorts of other things as well. We often have good discussions going on there that people are having. And uh, you can join that group, also get my online courses, get free eBooks, access to me through email, and other things like that by joining the online discipleship group. To learn more and join, just go to redeeminggod.com slash join, and you'll get some emails and other things that will introduce uh, all the aspects available to you in that way. So, thanks for listening. I imagine it was challenging. And even if you disagree, remember, that's okay. Hope you're disagreeing on biblical grounds. But hopefully I made you think. Made you think about some things in some new ways so that you can better follow Jesus into the world. All right, see you next week. Bye.